we go. Here we go. Welcome, welcome everybody to our second super exciting APCCC um, podcast series. Um, I'm here joined with my great friends Silky Gillison and Chris Sweeney um, and Alberto Bossi. And we're going to ask Alberto to introduce himself first. Is our guest speaker today? Welcome, uh, Alberto. Well, thank you very much for inviting me today. Uh, I am a radiation oncologist based in Paris, France, even if my origin is an Italian one, as you can guess from my name. Uh, I am uh, working in the genitourinary field in the last 25 years of my uh, professional practice, and I'm really excited to discuss with you some uh, items concerning adjuvant and salvage radiotherapy. Great. So welcome, Alberto. And um, so also to tell Tom that is Alberto. So maybe that uh, for the next time. Um, so <laughs> That's helpful. So some... thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry. So, um, yes, we have some interesting questions, I think. And um, so we're coming a bit from the APCCC where we find consensus in some questions. Um, that go for um, advanced prostate cancer and non-consensus in others. And I guess one of the big questions that still stays is um, which are these patients who really still need adjuvant treatment, radiotherapy after prostatectomy? Because there's all these new trials showing that probably early salvage is so much better, but um, and obviously has less toxicity, but then are there still some patients who really could profit from adjuvant radiotherapy after prostatectomy? Alberto. Well, Silke, this is a real $1 million question because, uh, as you said correctly, the result of three major randomized trials seems to have recently put an end on this debate, adjuvant versus salvage radiotherapy. I'm referring to the radicals, the JETUB-17, and the RAVES trial. Uh, we, we all know that they showed, as you said, that there is no difference in these two strategies. So why do we may irradiate patients early after radical prostatectomy if this translates into higher toxicity? But still, if you look into numbers of those trials, you may argue that few patients were randomized in the high-risk group. Uh, I'm referring here to a very uh, wise editorial of Dan Spratt that recently said, even in the post-op setting, we should uh, start uh, to consider that there are heterogeneous patients with very different characteristics. And if you look to these three major trials, uh, it really seems that the number of patients in the high-risk grouping was not so important. And indeed, if, if there is a role for adjuvant immediate radiotherapy, this should be limited to patients having uh, bad prognosticators, certainly not to Gleason 6, uh, negative margins, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, disease which is not, is not outside the, the capsule or has infiltrated the seminal vesicle. For patients having these prognosticators, there is perhaps still a role for adjuvant radiotherapy. But of course, if you only look to evidence-based medicine, and I think we should today, the, 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 the results of those trials have pushed the, the radiotherapy community to shift certainly to early salvage radiotherapy. Alberto, can I just pick up on one question? 
Why do we not want to give radiation to everyone? What's the downside for doing it? Well, the, the, the argument not to irradiate everybody in the adjuvant setting, so immediately after radical prostatectomy, is certainly linked to side effects. We know, and this is not only clear from the last three trials that I mentioned, but also from the experience of, of, of radiation oncologists and series published all over the world, that immediate radiotherapy after radical prostatectomy may translate into a higher toxicity. And, and this is probably the real argument that should, that should be that should be considered in this, in this respect. There is a second one, which is, uh, in my opinion, oncologically a little bit more sound, that tells you that if you wait for a rise in PSA, you will really identify patients needing radiotherapy. Not all patients will need radiotherapy after radical prostatectomy, even in the high-risk group. So PSA may tell you, after radical prostatectomy, which subgroup may need radiotherapy. And that makes perfect sense to me, Alberto. I'll pick up on one point. So the side effect profile, there's the notion that you start the radiation therapy when they've maximized their urine continence post-prostatectomy, and that can take a few months. Um, <clears throat> but I, I'll actually be interested to hear Silke and Tom's thought on this. Is There's the acute side effect profile, but without the prostate in place, there's a greater risk of proctitis and cystitis and I'm just forever noticing many patients when they're in their CRPC state. So these are young men that matriculated through multiple therapies. And 10, 15 years later, radiation seems to be the gift that keeps on giving with um, cystitis. And oftentimes they'll present with hematuria and sometimes it clots uh, or significant proctitis and the like. So that's one of the main reasons why I really, really um, have some reticence about giving radiation carte blanche to patients in the prostatectomy. How do you respond to that? Well, that's indeed, that's indeed true. Uh, if you look to the data of, of, uh, of Parker published on Lancet last year, referring to the radicals number, it's indeed mostly the genitourinary toxicity, which is enhanced dramatically by adjuvant immediate radiotherapy. Uh, if you look to numbers, you will see that you have twice the risk of de developing cystitis after adjuvant radiotherapy as compared to early salvage, and 10 times the risk of, de of, of developing late hematuria. As you said, these are very bothersome uh, effect for the quality of life of our patients. But of course, uh, once the patient uh, has bad prognosticators on his uh, pathology soon after radical prostatectomy, this should be, should, I think this should be put in, 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 uh, in, in balance. So mm -hmm. side effects and the risk of side effects should be discussed with him, knowing that probably the only uh, therapeutic intervention that may change his future is radiotherapy. Uh, you know that more than 40 to 50% of those patients will develop a rising PSA, um, which some series have also correlated to much more important endpoint. Um, so I really think that at least for the high-risk group, uh, this should be discussed with patients.
Alberto, maybe another question considering this, because obviously we're talking a lot about early salvage now, but what does that mean for you? So how often, how frequent are you doing the PSA controls or do you recommend to do PSA controls after postetectomy? Because I guess it's the same in France, like it is also in other countries, um, like in Switzerland, where we really see a lot of patients coming with high PSA after prostatectomy for the question of salvage radiotherapy. So, so what is your recommendation to avoid that? Well, Silke, this is a real danger. This is the, the, the you know, the urological community, I may guess, are a bit reluctant to, to speak about radiotherapy in the salvage setting to their patients because they may have recovered so well from radical prostatectomy that you say, okay, if they have to go through radiotherapy, they may, you know, have some uh, bad quality of life soon after. And as you said, if you look to statistics, only one third of patients with a rising PSA will receive some form of salvage radiotherapy. And this is really something which uh, the, urolo the urological community, our colleague, the surgeon, should be aware of. Because if we go for salvage, it should be early salvage. And indeed, PSA should be checked very frequently, especially in the high-risk group of patients. Uh, you're certainly aware that the uh, European uh, guidelines, both from the urologist and from the radiotherapist, have mentioned for years a threshold at 0.2 nanogram milliliter. But in the recent, more recent version of these guidelines, this threshold has been totally abandoned, which is to me a real uh, advancement. Because, come on, you cannot just, you know, <laughs> think that a, that a stupid threshold will translate all the different <laughs> biology of the patients you have in front of you. So I was always a little bit reluctant to use threshold to indicate the need of early salvage radiotherapy. Alberta, so in my how, daily practice, sorry. But how do you increase the numbers uh, of people getting early salvage therapy? Is it because about education in the community? Is it because of the confusion between adjuvant versus non-adjuvant therapy? And, and is it actually more important to educate about giving early salvage therapy than having this debate about whether we should be giving adjuvant therapy at all? Yeah, this is totally, totally correct. I think that, as you said, we have to educate urologists and probably patients also and general practitioners too, because a lot of follow-up on those patients, at least here in France, is done by general practitioners. The surgeons, once they have done radical prostatectomy, they don't seem to be so interested in following carefully their patients, I have to say. And... This is left to general protectioners. And general protectioners may just look on the, on, the, on the results of the exam and telling patient, okay, your PSA is just growing, it's 0 0.6, 0 0.9, 1, but you know the threshold is 4 nanogram milliliters, this dramatic. And so we can wait. And this, as Silke said, uh, may uh, translate into a very late salvage, which is totally nonsense. So in my opinion, the urology community should be um, targeted and probably also the general practitioner ones. 
and the patient itself. Believe me, I see still in my, in my practice quite a number of patients just coming uh, from their own or with their, with their wife uh, telling me, you know what, I've been operated six years ago. Nobody ever checked my PSA, but I've done it on my own. And these are the results. What do you think? So there is three groups of, uh, of, uh, uh, of major actors that should be, in my opinion, targeted. And, and Alberto, maybe we can say, um, or, or, or also tell Tom, you know, a new risk is now, Tom, that people are doing PSMA PET CTs when the PSA is rising. And then if there is, this is negative, they, they say, oh, it's fun, fantastic. Um, your, your image is clean, so we don't have to do anything. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe, Alberto, you want to comment on that because there is people now who, who really wait until they see something on the PSMA PET CT and then want to irradiate what they see. And obviously, this is also a bit contrary to the concept of early salvage. Oh, I don't know, Alberto, you are the, you yeah. are the expert. This is another very, very tricky question. In a couple of years, all this landscape of the post-op treatment have really exploded. So you, you are right, Silke. What to do with new imaging technique like PSMA? And indeed, I also see patients followed by the surgeon when, where PSMA are uh, regularly checked every three, every six months. Yes. Uh, before sending the patients for radiotherapy. So there are two things in my opinion. First, uh, we will not stop this PSMA mania. <laughs> we will see more and more patients asking for PSMA because they look on the internet, they see that PSMA is the future of imaging in prostate cancer. I want to have it. So we will not stop it. What I would like to see is a much more... Uh, how can I say, evidence-based use of the result of PSMA. As you said, if the PSMA is negative, when the PSA is rising after radical prostatectomy, you will probably identify the patients who will best respond mm -hmm. to early salvage radiotherapy. These are the patients to irradiate. These are the ones that are going probably better than the others. When you see something else, uh, outside the pelvis, for example, we know that these are the results of the of uh, of at least the forty to forty five percent of patients having PSMA for a rising PSA. When you see something else outside the the, the, the field of radiotherapy, well, this is a difficult decision. Should I enlarge my field? Mm -hmm. Should I go for metastasis directed therapy, stereotactic body radiotherapy, or whatever? Should I jump to androgen deprivation therapy, and who cares about the local control? All these should be, in my opinion, argument uh, should be uh, topics for randomized clinical trials. For the time being, I would not, you know, modify the, this, this rule. If the PSMA is negative, please irradiate your patient. Alberto, can I pick up on two lines of thought that you and Silke and Tom have had? One is... What is, the what is the benefit of radiating a patient um, with the rising PSA? Do you is there a survival benefit that we can reference? Is there a quality of life where there's a short-term um, 
treatment burden to, and the PSA goes down and they never have their PSA go up and they never need hormonal therapy. What are the benefits you explain to your patients uh, when they, you counsel them on the benefits of salvage radiation, of salvage radiation? Yeah, yeah, this is a very good question. So we have some data out there showing, and I'm referring to old series published by, by, by Stish, that there may be a relationship between, at least in the high-risk group of patients, between a rising PSA and more dramatic endpoint like metastasis, distant metastasis. Stish show this for the high-risk group of patients. So uh, irradiating a patient in the early salvage setting, for sure, uh, may translate in stopping the rise of PSA, which altogether I wouldn't consider such a trivial result, even from the psychological point of view of those patients. But certainly, at least for a group of those, this may translate in a survival benefit. So uh, does this also translate in postponing some other systemic therapy? I'm not that convinced because if you look to the results of our J216 trial and if you look to the SWOT trial of Shipley, it seems that at least for the very high-risk group of patients we are, we are discussing tonight, hormone therapy should be added. So uh, I don't believe that much in this idea that radiotherapy may postpone ADT, at least for this high-risk group of patients. I'll, I'll pick up on that line of thought. So, and I'll have you comment on the approach that I've adopted and see if you can uh, dissuade, me, dissuade me of this approach. So the patient with a very high risk that you're describing, I try and find a sweet spot of intense, uh, when the PSA gets above 0.1 and it's confirmed to be above 0.1, because there's a lot of movement below 0.1 that I find that it never gets above, never relapses or progresses. So I, if they have high-risk features, I will give six months of hormonal therapy akin to the GTAG-16 approach and with uh, radiation therapy and double down in that situation. Is that trying to find not too early in the adjuvant for everyone, not too late, but giving the hormonal therapy, hoping that you never see the PSA go up again. <laughs> What do you think about that approach? <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, I would, honestly, I would like to know, to know what Silke thinks about that, as being a, a, an oncologist dealing so much with, with genital urinary cancer. Uh, I love the way you dodged that question, Alberto. Right, Alberto, right. this is not the idea. <laughs> I'm going to keep... Okay, keep sorry. It's going to be called the, the Alberto Pass. <laughs> right. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a Federer, right? No, I, I, no let's say... Tony Blair, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I have to say, Alberto, this is a question I think I, I already discussed some patients with you as well, right? So, yeah. so I have to say it, it's always very difficult to really um, decide what is the best thing to do and you have to discuss with the patient. So there is some hints in the data. I agree totally with Chris here that maybe in some specific patients who have really a high risk, so this is the, there yeah. is this EAU low risk and high risk of um, kind of biochemical relapse with a, a very fast PSA doubling time and so on. And maybe 
these patients could profit from a um, kind of an ADT that is together with the ra salvage radiotherapy. We don't have the data. So it's really, I think, a discussion with, with the patient if he wants to take the side effects and wants to go for the maximum or not. So I would agree with Chris that we mostly dis, um, discuss it. But I just saw a patient yesterday who's um, a bit elderly and he said, no, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do the ADT as well, even if he maybe doesn't maximize the effect. So, so I think yeah. that, yeah. If I may add something, if you look carefully to the ZWOG and the JETUC-16 data, you will see that the driver of the benefit of hormonal therapy in the salvage setting together with radiotherapy is probably the PSA at entry, as we said. So if you see a patient presenting with a rising PSA, which is really 0 0.7, 0 0.8, or 0.9 nanogram milliliter, I think you have an argument to add some form of uh, depriva androgen deprivation therapy. The discussion may be which sort of ADT you will add to those patients. You know that the, the SWOC trial were using two years of, of bicalutamide. We here in France have been using six years of an analog. Six months. Uh, Sorry, six months of an analog. Indeed, I, I would I would probably go for this second option. Um, Alberto, we're we're running out of time. Although I'm told time is infinite, uh, it's not the case on our podcasts. Um, we've got probably time for one more question, Chris Silky. What do you uh, What do you want to go with? So why don't you present a, a case to uh, Alberto that sums all this up, that, and get Alberto on the record, not passing it off to you. <laughs> um, so I think I have actually another question if, if it's okay Chris um, yeah sure and, and that would be are there patients Alberto where you think after the prostatectomy you should not control the PSA at all <laughs> that's a very good question I would say patients they would have been uh, manageable with active surveillance. I still see some of those. Patients which had a very low PSA, Gleason score on biopsy, two biopsies, Gleason 6, 3 plus 3, and that wanted absolutely radical prostatectomy, or that were convinced by their surgeon to have radical prostatectomy. So for those patients, probably there is very little sense in checking the PSA repeatedly after after surgery. Can I give the, the Alberto the case? Okay. Yeah. So Alberto, a 56-year-old man who's in great health, no comorbidities, has a, uh, a Gleason 4 plus 5 with some seminal, seminal vesicle invasion, um, margin positive. His preoperative PSA was 5.2. And his post-op PSA is 0 0.02 at... Uh, month three, and he's completely recovered his uh, continence. Would you? What would you? How would you treat him? Adjuvant or wait for his PSA to rise? And would you add hormonal therapy in at this stage in either setting? So I would discuss with him the data we have from these three trials. I would tell him 
that we know that immediate adjuvant radiotherapy would probably enhance the risk of uh, urinary side effects. But I would also explain him that due to these bad prognosticators, Gleason score, infiltration of seminal vesicle, uh, extraprostatic disease, is probably the profile of patients who would benefit from adjuvant radiotherapy. So altogether, I think that this is clearly the patient. Uh, of course, there is something which I've not mentioned up to now, which is very common in the States, so much light, less in Europe, time which to is... Bring it in. It's a late time to bring it in, but far away. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, okay. No, oh, I was mentioning genetic profiling, yeah. which may yeah. play a role in those patients. That's all. And what does that profiling look like? <laughs> The decipher, pro you're referring to the decipher high risk profile for okay. the risk of intestinal We, we talked about that another time, Tom. This is a really large field. Okay, so we're not going to go into that. What I would say, um, Chris, so the, the Alberta, you haven't said whether or not you're going to give him hormone therapy. You're giving, is it going to be just radiation therapy or is it the combination for this patient? I would, I would give with? six months of ADT. That sounds really good. Um, and with the PSA of 0.02, you wouldn't wait for it to get to 0.1. No, no. Yeah. And I, the one thing I would just say is that when we look at a nomogram, you can see that that person has almost an 80, maybe, uh, I won't quote an actual number, go to a nomogram. But the chance that he won't be getting radiation at some stage or relapsing at some stage is very, very low. So the chance of over-treatment is very, very low when you look at a nomogram for a patient like that. So I, I, I agree with you, Alberto. And Sweeney, how often do you look at those sort of nomograms? Is that something that's in your mind thinking, you know, is that, it sounds to me like if the radiotherapy is inevitable at some point, why not do it now? Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I do. I pull up the nomogram. The Memorial Sloan Kettering online nomogram is very good for this. And I will yeah. look at it and it has the 10 and 15 year rates of uh, prostate cancer death and relapse. And it really helps patients put put it in. So if it's like only a 10% chance the PSA is going to go up, they say, well, do we really have to? And I go, no. If it's 80%, you go, well, maybe yes. And so I use the Novogram to help patients make decisions with together. Alberto, this is an incredibly exciting podcast. It's also an exciting time for both Italy and Paris. Italy with your fantastic Olympic Games. I saw those sprinters coming in the 100 metres, which I thought was terrific. And Paris 40 with... medals. They made uh, 40 medals. The, uh, the but, but Paris with the uh, with the Olympics and with Lionel Messi coming, um, I yeah. don't know how I don't know how good he is anymore, but he's coming anyway. And, <laughs> and, uh, and of course with Esmo coming up in Paris, and I don't know if you're going to be if you don't know if you're going to be at Esmo, but I'm certainly going to be there, and Silky is too. Well, I'm going to do my best, even if I'm not invited. I'm going to go. So uh, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing you really soon. Um, this has been terrific and, uh, and in great work in, uh, in this really important disease. Thanks, Tom. Hey, thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Bye-bye. Ciao, ciao, ciao.